Welcome to the Capitol Beach. I am your host, Derek Brockbank. I'm the Executive Director of American Shore and Beach Preservation Association, and I'm uh, very excited about today's show where we are, I think this is the first time on the ASPN network that we are going to be interviewing someone from the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. So I'm very pleased today to be uh, joined by Renee Orr, who is Chief of the Office of Strategic Resources and is acting uh, as Deputy Director for all of Bureau of Ocean Energy Management at the moment. So we'll ask her a little bit about that. Um, and we'll have a good conversation, uh, a bit about uh, sand and marine minerals and all the work that uh, BOEM, BOEM is often the acronym or the way we shorten uh, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. We'll hear how, what they're doing on coastal resilience. But first, let's take your word from our sponsors. And as always on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, we want to thank coastal engineering consultants from Naples, Florida, that firm led by our good friend Michael Poff in Naples. Find Michael and his firm at coastalengineering.com. And of course, uh, we need to thank our good friend, uh, friends at Dune Doctors, the uh, outstanding dune restoration and native vegetation consulting firm. Uh, they work all along the Gulf Coast, so if you are in need of vegetating your dune system, building your dune system, uh, give them a call. Go to www.dunedoctors.com. And uh, finally, Bill Worsham at LJA Engineering, the head of the Coastal Division, LJA Engineering with 28 offices around the southern United States, superb firm. We've done a lot of work with them back in the old days find Bill Worsham and his team at LJA.com. Okay, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us, Renee. Thanks for being here. Absolutely, Derek. I'm very happy to be here and, and thrilled with the opportunity to, to, uh, to speak with you and, and your listeners here and talk a little bit about, about BOEM. Um, you did mention that I'm the Chief of the Office of Strategic Resources mm-hmm. for BOEM. I've um, been in that position really since BOEM was created in 2011. Um, and for the last couple of months and for the next next couple more months, I'm going to be the acting deputy director uh, for BOEM. Cool. Well, we'll get into a bit of uh, strategic resources, what that means, what the Marine Minerals Program do, does. Um, but actually, before we dive into to BOEM, let's hear a little look here a bit about you. How did you get involved in both the organization? You said you were given the start, but even before that, what, what got you interested in coastal work and federal government work? I have um, always been, uh, the coast and the beach has always been part of my life. I grew up on the East Coast. Um, it's been Northern Virginia, right, nice. right around here. Um, I'm one of those very, you know, uh, my mother's natives. You don't find too much around the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, but we spent time in the Outer Banks in North Carolina, Assateague Island, um, and that's always been just kind of part of, of who I am, and I absolutely feel a connection to the coast. I started with the Department of the Interior with the predecessor to BOEM, the Minerals Management Service, in 1988, straight out of college. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, graduating college with a degree in economics uh, and started working for the royalty side, which is the money collection side of the Minerals Management Service. Uh, and then in 1992, made the decision that I wanted to, and I was in Colorado at the time, in our Denver made the decision in 1992 I want to move back to back home mm-hmm. um, and was fortunate that I was selected for position here at, at MMS did policy for a little bit and then had the opportunity to move into the offshore program and started working with uh, a group that we had at the time called the International Activities and Marine Minerals Program 
it was about 1995 that I started working on the Marine Minerals Program and those issues. Really at the um, really the beginning of Bones or MMS's work in marine minerals. Okay. There was a, an amendment to the Lands Act that, that gave, uh, even though we had the authority to oversee marine minerals, there really wasn't a mechanism to get their sand and gravel resources to the coastal communities who had need of them. And, and we'll dive into this pretty mm -hmm. in depth, but mm -hmm. when we talk about marine minerals, what do marine minerals mean for the agency? Um, marine minerals, and, and most of what we'll be talking about today, and, and uh, really where my passion is, is around the, the sand and gravel resources, sediment used for coastal protection, ecosystem protection, um, shoreline rebuilding projects. Okay, so you are the chief of the Office of Strategic Resources. Obviously, that includes marine minerals, but can you talk about what strategic resources means uh, for uh, the agency and the department? Sure, sure. Um, and I'll back up just a little bit for, mm -hmm. for those that aren't familiar with, with, with what BOEM is, or even sure. the Department of the Interior's responsibilities, and why are we even talking about the Outer Continental Shelf and those mineral resources? Just kind of put some context. Yeah, about 70 years ago, Congress uh, passed and President Eisenhower signed the Submerged Lands Act, uh, which gave the, basically declared that the seabed beyond state's jurisdiction belonged to the nation as a whole. About 40 years ago, 1978, Congress passed the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act, which gave the Secretary of the Interior the responsibility for managing the mineral and energy resources that lie on that submerged seabed. And so those energy and mineral resources include the oil and gas resources, the marine minerals. Um, and then in 2005, the Lands Act was amended and gave us the responsibility for the renewable energy projects on the outer continental shelf. So when we talk about the, the strategic resources um, and the set of responsibilities that, that we have, um, I've got a fantastic team of scientists, including geologists and oceanographers and biologists and economists and uh, cartographers, analysts that help with the, the various duties that we have, which includes the development and implementation of the National Oil and Gas Leasing Program. In that Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act, Congress directed the Secretary to prepare a schedule of lease sales, oil and gas lease sales, every five years. Um, and so that's part of the responsibility of, of my office. As part of that work, we also have the responsibility to assess um, and update the, our estimate of the nation's endowment of oil and gas resources. Um, we also are responsible for establishing the fiscal terms that, make, that ensure that the public gets a fair market value, and that's per the law, for the, the development of its resources. Uh, we develop the official leasing maps for oil and gas uh, and for renewable energy. And for, and for marine minerals. Uh, we also are responsible for the developing policies that ensure that companies have the financial capability to meet their responsibilities, the fiscal responsibilities, all the way through the end of the life of the lease, which would include decommissioning and removing facilities. Okay. So sort of that broad set of responsibilities that we have in the Office of Strategic Resources and the Marine Minerals Program, which frankly is the, my favorite part of my job. So a broad range of, of capacities there. We are going to be talking about the Marine Minerals Program, but I think uh, the elephant in the room whenever we talk to BOEM is the Offshore Oil and Gas Program. 
it's obviously gotten the most attention recently. Secretary Bernhardt, new Secretary Bernhardt, mentioned in a Wall Street Journal article, I think just two weeks ago, that the expansion of Atlantic offshore oil and gas was um, being put on hold. I think he used the phrase that, that there was some lawsuit around Alaska had discombobulated the plan, which I thought would be great use of the word discombobulated. Anything you can uh, share with us about sort of what timing is, what the next steps are, what's happening with the, the offshore Atlantic uh, or uh, the offshore expansion of oil and gas? Right, right. Um, really can't say too much more than, than the secretary did. We are really evaluating our options okay. you know, given the court decision and making decisions about you know, what, what the uh, path forward will be. Okay. And I know, I will say that you guys have always, I've always found you guys to be very good in holding stakeholder meetings. There's always been sort of a very engaged uh, process throughout this. So I assume that any any next steps are going to continue to engage stakeholders and, and the community as much as you guys can and are, are legally required to. Right. A absolutely. Our engagement with stakeholders and making sure that we are informing stakeholders, educating stakeholders. Um, and giving them the opportunity to provide input is sort of at the core of our values as, as well. So we absolutely would do that. Cool. Um, one more energy question. Uh, you mentioned that there was an update to the offshore, uh, I forgot about the exact law, but that it included renewable energy portfolio. There's now offshore wind energy coming in Rhode Island, and I believe there's a bunch more of these sales. Is there anything you sort of want to share about offshore renewable energy going on at BOEM right now? I guess I would I would love I would love to say that or I'd like to say that we are very pleased with the growth of the program. Um, as I mentioned, the responsibility for renewable energy was uh, is a fairly new um, addition to the set of responsibilities that we have, um, and there's we're very pleased with the growth of it. We actually conducted eight competitive lease sales along the Atlantic coast. We have 15 active leases uh, in various various stages in, in the development and we are um, we're reviewing construction and operation plans um, and so we are again it, it's the engagement with stakeholders that's critically important to the development of this of the renewable energy program as well um, and it, it is growing and evolving and, and we're learning as as we go as you can imagine um, anytime anything is going to be permanently placed in the ocean there are there's somebody somewhere that's using that that bit of the ocean, and so there is um, a lot of stakeholder engagement that, that we need to do, and we continue to do to make sure we can meet all of the uh, all the needs of all of the users. Great. I think one thing that all the American Trolling Podcast Network shows or podcasts have in common is we all sort of recognize that America's coastline is a working coastline. We've long passed the point of you know, wilderness, all natural, like can't, you know, so I think it's uh, really interesting to hear Bohm's perspective on both the work that you are doing in supporting energy, both renewable and uh, and fossil fuel energy, uh, but then also the work you guys are very involved in, in restoring and maintaining the resilience of our coast. And that's really where I wanted to turn next. Mm -hmm. You know, my favorite topic on this show, folks probably know, is, is sand and how we can uh, Renourish our beaches and maintain our coastlines. So um, I'm just going to sort of throw you a big, broad softball here to uh, hit out. Is um, what is what is Boehm doing to help communities restore their coastal ecosystems and maintain their uh, maintain coastal flood risk projects? Um, I would say uh, we 
many things that we're doing, but I would say our, our highest priority and, and lots of things sort of fall under the umbrella of our national offshore sand inventory. We uh, began this, this process in 1995 when we um, really started working on marine minerals on the OCS. Um, and we began an effort to collect data uh, really at a very small scale and working with state partners. Uh, and over those the intervening years, we have amassed quite a lot of information on resource potential and environmental impacts and um, benefit communities and, and all of that sort of information. But it was basically on a lot of CDs and a lot of uh, you know uh, paper publications that were in our offices and not accessible to the public and really um, out and available for those decision makers. And so before we totally dive into this, just to be very clear, the National Sand Inventory, you guys are looking, looking for assessing basically deposits of sand, gravel, or other usable sediment materials that are off on the outer continental shelf, meaning in federal waters? Right, beyond okay. that three miles. Right. Um, and that's the three miles. And then it, my, my, I recall there are certain states that actually have greater than three miles based on sort of historical precedence, yep, right? Yeah, absolutely right. The west coast of Florida uh -huh. and the coast of Texas and Gulf of Mexico both have more than three miles. Okay. Um, and it, it is, it's a historical, um, it's fascinating. Anybody wants to look into it, it really is fascinating. We'll put that on our, our legal show. <laughs> uh, so you guys are assessing sand deposit or sand, all sand deposits sort of economically Viable sand deposits, sort of how does that inventory work? Is it really just what can be used, or is it like mapping the entire ocean floor? It's really kind of stepping back and looking at our role as stewards of these resources. Okay. Um, and you, to be a responsible steward, you need to know how much resource you have. We're okay. making decisions about whether and, and when to allocate that sand to provide it when, when requests come in. And so to me, sort of foundational to that is knowing how much resource we have. Um, because once it's conveyed, for all intents and purposes, it's not a renewable resource. Mm -hmm. In some places you might have some accretion, but for the most part, once you put it on a beach, it's gonna go somewhere else. And so when, when people ask me, well, what do we know about offshore sand? Mm -hmm. I would say that the only answer I can give you truthfully is we don't have enough. We don't have enough for all of the uses that we can all envision going forward into the future. And so, as I said, as we're making decisions about allocating sand today, is that impacting what uses there would be for it tomorrow? And so as we think about the inventory, it is to, to the best of our ability, let's identify what resources we have so we can make informed decisions about how, how to allocate those going forward. You know, these, these resources are critically important for so many uses, you know, for shore protection, for beaches and for tourism, for protection of critical infrastructure, including military facilities and NASA, uh, for rebuilding wetlands. And there is only so much of that resource. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it's a working coast and there's lots of other activities going on out there. So we have things like pipe, like uh, subsea cables yeah. are being laid offshore. And um, if we don't know that there's a sand source that uh, potentially could be used in the future and a cable is laid over top of it, we have made potentially a significant amount of sand unavailable to be used for shore protection going forward. Right. 
And so developing this national standard inventory really will help us be that proactive resource manager going forward. Um, and, say, and as I said, we're really at the very beginning of this. We have been doing this for since the beginning of the program, but to date, we have only surveyed about 5% of the area that's mm -hmm. technologically accessible sand today. So, you know, as you think about the various places where we know we've got projects today, and you think about the coastal storms and impacts that they're having, and you see a, an exponential increase in the request for sand and the amount of sand they need, um, we know there's not enough out there. And you, I think people have heard the, the term sand wars. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as the manager of that resource beyond three miles, we are the ones they're coming to. And yeah, I don't want to be the general that's yeah. directing sand wars. I, I want us to be making informed decisions uh, collectively about use of these resources. How much should we have? Who else is using it? What creatures are using it? And how much can be removed without having you know, um, significant environmental impacts? And where would it go? And I also think about, you know, I've been doing this for about 20 years, and I think as we talk about a national sand inventory, I'm thinking about the future. And what will the future of the coast look like 20 years from now, 40 years from now? And where's that sand going to come from? And how are we going to be positioning ourselves today and collecting information today that will ensure that the critical material that's needed for those decisions 20 years from now, 40 years from now, is available and we're making the best decisions we can. Can you talk about some of the projects that you guys have helped support? I think some of this is interesting in the, the, the theoretical and the sort of the conceptual, but putting the sand on the ground, I think, is a great way to identify um, how you guys are helping. And I gotta say, your, your website has is got some great statistics on there. I was pulling some of this up earlier. According to, according to your website, you have pulled uh, the total sand allocated from 1995 to the present is 152 million cubic yards. I mean, that's astonishing. Um, you've helped restore 339 miles of shoreline, um, you know, just really large volumes of sand. You know, miles of coastline that you help restore. Are there any sort of projects that come to mind as really, you know, cool or interesting or big that you want to talk about? Sure. Yeah, we have. Um, yeah, all of our projects are cool in one form or fashion. I would say. <laughs> but, we love um, all our children equally. <laughs> yes. Yes, we do. Um, the, the largest project that's taking place right now is in our is in the Gulf of Mexico, um, offshore Mississippi and Alabama. Yeah. Um, it's the Mississippi Coastal Improvement Program, MISSIP, mm -hmm. uh, and it's restoring Ship Island at the Gulf Islands National Seashore. Um, it's Park Service property, um, and it, part of the restored area is called the Camille Cut, where Hurricane Camille cut Ship Island in two in 1969. So that was 50 years ago. And the activities happening today are really to try to help to restore that area and the protection that those barrier islands provide to the coast of, of Louisiana and Alabama. Um, it's a significant amount of sand, 19.6 uh, million cubic yards uh, from both federal and state waters. And so when you, the statistic that you cited of 152 million cubic yards of sand that we've conveyed so far, right there, that's, all, that's over 10% yeah. um, of that total. Um, and as I said before, the, the amount that we have been conveying and the number of conveyances is just uh, increasing 
as as we go forward. And if I can jump in, so 19.6 million cubic yards for this one project. I'm a political science by background, so I don't. I'm not a geologist or engineer, so I did a little bit of research to figure out what that actually meant. Um, so for our listeners, a dump truck, a standard federal, a standard you know operational dump truck, holds between 10 to 14 cubic yards. So you're looking at uh, you're looking at over a million dump trucks worth of sand. And then because I wanted to geek out even further, I said, okay, what's really big? I grew up in New York. So I said, what is the volume of the Empire State Building? And of course, on Google, you can find out anything you want to know. Um, the volume of the Empire State Building is 1.4 million cubic yards. So this one project in, in the Mississippi is putting on the size of 12 Empire State Buildings worth of sand on the project. So to give you perspective, over a million dump trucks, 12 Empire State Buildings. This is a lot of sand. Just really fascinating work these guys it are doing is. down there. It is. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous amount of sand, and, and that's not um, that's not the only project that's going on in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, we've got another one, uh, Caminata Headland, um, which is uh, 11.3 million cubic yards, and that's all OCS sand mm. that's being used. Mm. Um, that's uh, the, that project is about 100 miles south of New Orleans. It, it is another um, barrier island uh, mm-hmm. restoration project. Um, these barrier islands provide critical protection to the infrastructure, to the wetlands of Louisiana, uh, but also to all the infrastructure down there. Uh, and this one in particular provides some um, some critical protection to Port Fouchon, which provides. It, it, that port is the gateway for almost 20% of the country's oil supply that's destined for refineries. Uh, and there's one highway to get in uh, Port Fouchon. And this project provides the protection uh, for that critical infrastructure there. Uh, we also, on the Atlantic coast, not to, not to leave the Atlantic coast out, uh, we have uh, Long Beach Island, New Jersey, mm-hmm. uh, as our biggest project on the Atlantic coast so far, and that was 10 million cubic yards. So it's um, nothing to sneeze at there either. That was about 12 miles of shoreline that was protected there. It's also is a barrier island. Uh, it's about 25 miles north of Atlantic City as the critical lies. Um, several phases of that between 2015 and, and 2016. So, um, and we have several other projects that are uh, in the works. Well, I'm going to name just one more because, uh, well, we do love all our beaches equally. ASBPA does have some best restored beaches, and one of our 2018 best restored beach was uh, Sand Sandbridge Beach, Virginia, which is a which is an OCS project. And I'd also be remiss not to mention that because our executive vice president Phil Roars is the, the beach manager for Virginia Beach, and so he, he manages that project. So I'm sure he he'd want me to talk about how great that one was. And, and I'm glad that you mentioned Sandbridge Beach. That one is near near and dear to my heart. That was my very first negotiated lease I worked on. Cool. Uh, the big, at the beginning of, of my career, and so that has been um, as we as we think about the, the importance of the National Sand Inventory and having this information available. Sandbridge Beach has been restored several times mm-hmm. over the past twenty years, and that same sand source has been used for Dan Naval Facility. It's also been used for Virginia Beach, the Virginia Beach stretch mm-hmm. of the beach, uh, and so. As we think about the use of these resources and the identification uh, and quantification of those resources, areas like Sandbridge and Sandbridge Shoal, which is what's been mm-hmm. used, you know, it's sort of the, the poster child for trying to understand the resource that we have and, and the uses of it 
going forward? And are we, what are we doing to make sure that we've identified resources that Sandbridge will be able to use 20 years from now, 30 years from now? Damn that thing is so good. So to that, to that, when you have a lease, how like is there a standard for how long that lease is for? Is it for one renourishment period? Is it for multiple renourishment periods? How does that work? It is for one renourishment period. Mm -hmm. um, generally, are for three years, although um, there can be extensions okay. for um, certain circumstances. Uh, and and the the purpose really is because and Sandbridge is is a great example of that. You have different users, mm -hmm. different sites that would like to use Sandbridge Shoal for their projects. And so providing sort of unilateral access to that resource then sort of squeezes out those others. And so we don't give exclusive rights to federal sand resources for specific No projects. single user can monopolize that. Exactly. Cool. exactly. Great. Well, I uh, wanted to also bring up, and sort of this maybe can tie this into the marine mineral information system. So we're talking about the inventory that's sort of assessing where it all where all the source, sources of sand are. We're talking about moving it from <laughs> paper files and CD files to a centrally, uh, central repository. Um, we've got the users who are actually accessing the sand, and maybe that, in my sense, is that sort of all comes together in the MMIS, the Marine Mineral Information System. You want to share a little bit about what that is and, and the work you're doing on that? Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, we're very, very proud of the um, MMIS, and uh, we launched it uh, earlier this year. And it, as you know, as as you said, it's taking we've sort of populated it with the this information that we've been collecting over the last thirty years, translating it from CDs and paper files to um, geospatial information that is accessible to the public, to coastal managers, other federal agencies, and we are the the ongoing work that we are doing, uh, in particular with coastal states, to identify additional sand resources, we will continue to populate it. Uh, and that really is sort of the, the source for and the repository for all of this information that we're collecting. Um, our goal is to have the, the sand resource information there, but also the environmental information and trying to identify the resource to the extent that it is compatible with the shore protection projects that are there. And you said this, but I wanted to highlight it and make sure all our, our listeners heard. This is a publicly accessible database. Anyone can go on, use it, sort through all the data that's there, use the different layers to, you know, if you just want to see sand resources and that's all you care about, you can do that. If you want to see sort of environmental impacts, if you want to see other kind of resources, who'd use the sand, that's all there too. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's, it's geospatial information, so you've got maps and you'll be able to draw polygons on the maps and pull up all of the information that we have in that particular area. If there have been leases that we've um, had in the past, you would see that information. If there are cores that have been collected, you would be able to get actually, uh, in some instances, you would be able to get a picture of that core. Uh, and so there's the, the wealth of information that's there for, for coastal managers or even for um, researchers and students. You know, interested in this information. So this to me is such a, a, a cool product and it really hits to uh, what ASBPA wants to see with the coast. ASBPA's mission statement is merging science and policy to protect, restore, and enhance the coast. And like the MMIS in my mind is is that in a nutshell, right? You've got this federal agency that 
who, who gets federal funding to put this project together. You've done some, you being Boehm, done some of the, the research in the original data set, but you're also compiling data sets from coastal states, from NGOs, from partner agencies to sort of combine the, 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 the policy work into this really cool toolkit that the public can use. So I, I just think this is an awesome, um, awesome tool that you guys put together. Well, thank you. We're very, very proud of it. Uh, and speaking of which, and I, I wanted to touch on this, at least on the, the website you say you, you've drawn data from more, more than 40 partners in federal, state, local government, academia, other entities. Uh, just in working with you and, and with Bohm in the past, I've always found Bohm to be a really good collaborative agency, and maybe that's you have to be that way because you know you're assessing the same, but it's it's the Army Corps, someone else is placing it. But can you talk to me a bit about how you see Bohm's role in it? And then, frankly, personally, from what I've seen of, of your work, you seem to be a really strong advocate for collaboration across agencies, collaboration across um, working with stakeholders. Can you talk a bit about sort of how how you view collaboration across federal agencies and the stakeholders? Absolutely. Um, I think collaboration and, and coordination is at the core of what we do. You know, we, we were talking earlier about how busy the ocean mm -hmm. is. Um, and and BOEM isn't the sole regulator out there. There's lots of other activity going on out there. Um, and our, I, I would say I'm particularly proud of our relationship with the Corps of Engineers um, and how that's evolved over the last few years and really developed into a partnership sort of relationship. Also working with the coastal states. Mm -hmm. That has been um, sort of at the foundation of uh, the work that we've done to gather sand uh, resource information, mm -hmm. but also the learning about the projects early on mm -hmm. is critically important mm -hmm. too. And so we can try to focus, we have very limited resources that we can put toward um, the Marine Minerals Program. So we want to spend those resources to sort of the, the best use and, and most timely use. And so that interaction with the states is critically important and the, the expertise that resides in the states in particular with the state geologists um, has been just critical to the work that we have going forward uh, yeah it's been, it's been a pleasure working with you from uh, things we haven't even touched on the u.s coastal research program to some of the environmental studies i mean i feel just talking to some of your staff and i said man we could do a whole series of podcasts with mm -hmm. renee you guys have so much cool stuff going on on the coast but i appreciate you your time and, and talking us through all this stuff just a, a, a final couple of questions, and this one is, is a personal one. We always ask our guests um, what their favorite beach is. And you can choose to take this any way you want. You mentioned a couple that you grew up going to. You also mentioned one that you worked on professionally. So however you want, what is your, your favorite beach and why? Hmm, that is a tough question. I have so many favorite beaches for so many different reasons. Um, I guess I would probably say the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Um, Anywhere in particular in the Outer Banks? It would be the, this is going back a long time, when I was probably like six or seven years old, um, and I think it's the, the National Park down, uh -huh. um, down near Hatteras. Yep. And um, <laughs> people can't see, but I've, I've been around for a while, so when we talk about when I was six or seven years old, that that's quite... A long time ago, um, there was not uh, there wasn't much down there. Uh -huh. There wasn't much on the Outer Banks when I was going there yeah. as a kid, and so I've got memories of 
going there with my family and my father had turned a, an ice truck into an RV huh. and we uh, went down as a family and, and camped on the beach and, and really lived in the rough and it was just a, a wonderful time. Uh, and, and you know, as I think you asked, sort of we kick this off with um, why is the, the coast important to me and, and I think about, for me it's, it's, it's so important on a personal level. Mm -hmm. on the, the soul soothing mm -hmm. level, I, mm -hmm. I think about it, but also on a family level. Yeah. You know, the, the family relationships that you build and the traditions that you build and the trust that, that's built. And then you can go, you know, sort of up from there. It's, it's, a, they're important from a, on a local level and a national level. But you know, I guess fundamentally at its core, it's, it's personal and it's family. I think that's a great way to put it. So many people talk that when I ask what's your favorite beach, you go back to that beach that you remember growing up on. Um, and I think it, it does come back to that connection of, of family and that very sort of primal feel of uh, being out in the ocean or out in the water and you're no longer in control. You know, you're, you're, you're connected to nature. Um, and that's, and that's a, a seminal moment for almost everyone growing up. Absolutely. Well, Renee, thank you so much for joining us. There's so much more we could discuss, but I, I you know, we just don't have time. <laughs> uh, but if people do want to learn more, uh, we mentioned the Marine Minerals Information System, uh, the Marine Minerals Program. Uh, where can folks go to get more information? Your website? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, www.bone.gov. And we have at the top of the page, we get the Marine Minerals um, Program is there. And there's lots of information that would encourage folks to go in and explore and, um, and reach out. We're, we're always interested in um, talking. It's a really great website. I'm not, I'm not a, not a scientist, not a modeler, not a GIS person, but I was able to follow some of the MMIS stuff. The statistics that I, I cited earlier, you got a great website with statistics. Uh, Renee, thank you so much for joining us, and, and thank you so much for your work on the coast. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you. Absolutely. Thanks so much for the opportunity.